Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is a special live breakfast edition of Talking Politics. We're coming to you in front of an audience the morning after Super Tuesday. It is now Super Wednesday. Joe Biden is back. American politics looks very different today, and we have got a lot to talk about. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. To discuss all this with me, we have Gary Gerstel, Professor of American History, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy. The three of us have been talking about this nomination race for quite a while. I was looking at the real clear politics betting chart this morning, which looks like either kind of Dadaist art or something a two-year-old child would have drawn. The lines go up and down and up and down. But it's not just that Joe Biden is the comeback kid. He's the five times comeback kid because he has been favourite for the Democratic nomination five times and four times he has fallen away and each time to be replaced as favourite by someone else. So Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. There was a point quite recently where Bloomberg and Buttigieg were both <coughs> ahead of him in the betting. And now he is, for the first time, not just the favourite, but the absolutely overwhelming favourite to be the nominee. It's not certain, and we'll talk about scenarios in which he might not be the nominee, <coughs> but it does look like Joe Biden against Donald Trump is now very likely to be the election in November. So we need to think about how this happened and we need to think about what might happen when that comes. Let's do how it happened first. I'm going to sound like a stuck record because I say this too often on this podcast. I think age matters more than anything else at the moment in contemporary democratic politics. I had my doubts that Bernie was going to get there after New Hampshire and Iowa because I thought there was a ceiling to his coalition. His coalition can draw it in various ways, but it's young people. It's more young people this time than last time, I would say. Latino voters, college voters. Biden has managed to assemble a coalition which looks like African-American voters, suburban voters, older voters. There are more people in the second group than there are in the first group. Now, you need to tell me it's more complicated than that. Uh, me. Yeah, you. <laughs> It's more or Helen. It's more complicated. <laughs> I know Helen thinks it's more complicated <laughs> than that, because it is always more complicated. What do you think happened in the last week? Well, the last 10 days, uh, Joe has become Lazarus and has risen from the dead. It's been a, a remarkable recovery predicted by very few people. We're going to have to focus on a number of elements of this, but turnout is one. Bernie was promising a revolution in a number of ways, one of which unprecedented levels of turnout among his people, and that includes especially the young, Latinos, leftists in American society. What's striking about the first few 
primary events that Sanders won is that turnout did not go up very much, did not go up in Iowa, did not go up in New Hampshire, did not even go up in Nevada. The first place where turnout went up very significantly was South Carolina, and that seems now to have been repeated at least across all the southern states. And so it turns out Biden had not just a South Carolina wall, but a southern wall. And at the center of that is a very well-organized African-American bloc of voters who have to be seen as, in the first instance, saving Biden from ignominy and putting his campaign back on track. I also think it's significant that this is going on in the South. We might ask, why is Super Tuesday so weighted to the southern states, something almost entirely unremarked upon in all the news coverage I've seen and all the everything on, on Twitter? Things do happen by accident in American political history, and they also happen by design. This was actually put in place by Jimmy Carter's people in the 1980 election to stop a challenge by Ted Kennedy for the nomination of 1980. This was a southern wall constructed to put a more conservative face on the Democratic Party, and lo and behold, it's worked for Biden against Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I mean, I think the crucial thing really is, the, is African-American voters because they're the ones who basically have determined the Democratic Party nomination for quite some time. And because there are a very large group within the demographic proportions of the, the Democratic coalition who vote in, in, in primaries and come out in caucuses, they tend to vote in large numbers for the same candidate. Though, interestingly, I mean, Biden, as I saw it from the South Carolina, was scoring at about 60%, between 60 and 70%, which is actually lower of proportion of the African-American vote than Obama in 2008 or Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. But this was always Biden's way back. And so I think that anybody who wrote him off before South Carolina had happened was missing something. Because if it was proven that he still had a defense in place with African-American voters, that pretty much everybody still thought after the first three primaries and caucuses that he would win in South Carolina. The question was by how much. If that defense was still in place, then he always had a path to become the person with the, the largest number of delegates going, going in because the African-American voting bloc is just a very significant part of the Democrat coalition. So unless Sanders had a way in of breaking that up and making that vote fragment more than it usually does, then Biden was in with a chance. So one thing that clearly has changed as well is after South Carolina, two of his centrist rivals, Klobuchar and Buttigieg, dropped out. Elizabeth Warren did not drop out. Elizabeth Warren has taken significant votes in almost every state, not enough to get her close to being a winner, but between 10 and 20% in many places. I was looking back and thinking about the 2016 race and Trump winning, and lots of people have drawn parallels between Trump and Sanders and saying the party no longer decides, you can't stop these candidates once they get momentum behind them. But there's a massive difference, and if you look at the timing, a huge difference. So Super Tuesday for the Republican nomination in 2016, Trump was still up against Cruz and Rubio, who between them got over 50% of the vote, but they divided it. And Trump stormed through on Super Tuesday with about, in terms of the popular vote, about 35%, I think. People didn't drop out. This time, the Democratic Party, some discipline, I don't know exactly where it came from, kicked in, so that Biden did look like, if you want to stop Bernie, you've got to vote for Joe. And Elizabeth Warren didn't pull out. So two questions here, one of which is, 
does this show what the Republicans could have done in 2016? And the other is, what would have happened if Warren had dropped out as well? So if we take them in order, maybe Helen, you could do the, because I know you have views about Trump in 2016. Does this suggest a way in which the party could have decided then, which is just to get the discipline, if you want to stop him, here's your alternative, in place quicker? I think the big difference is, is the attitude of the Republican Party establishment to Ted Cruz, who's a person that they would have to have rallied behind. So they couldn't have rallied behind Rubio because... Rubio had done terribly before Super Tuesday. I, 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 once upon a time knew this, but I can't remember. I think it was his best third place. Anyway, he'd done very poorly. I don't see how they could have rallied behind Rubio. So um, say Rubio drops out, yeah, then that's and then the And then the problem is, is that the Republican Party establishment hated Cruz almost as much as they hated Trump. In some sense, Cruz was sort of allying himself with Trump although there was obviously a great deal of personal antagonism between them, on a set of issues that mattered to Republican primary voters, they were quite allied to each other, not least on the issue of immigration. That was what basically set both of them apart from the rest of the field and allowed them to establish the leads in which that they did in those um, early states. So even though I can see ways in which until Cruz dropped out, there were many of the never-Trumpers who would say, I could just about tolerate Cruz... They didn't have the same relationship with him that the Democratic Party establishment has with Joe Biden. Gary, do you think... So that, that phrase, the party decides, it comes from a book, and it was the idea that these nomination races are, can be controlled and then Trump seemed to blow that out of the water, and now we're back. Which I think the, the Democratic Party has certainly learned, feels it learned a lesson about the Republicans in 2016, and they said, we are not going to let this happen. They came close to letting it happen. Yeah, the question is, who is we in that statement uh, who could affect such a quick consolidation among the party establishment in a party not known for having an ability to consolidate quickly? The Democrats are always more unwieldy and represent many more constituencies than the Republicans do. So who was the person or people who could have done this? And the person who speaks loudest to me is the person who's not said anything at all, five letters, O-B-A-M-A, Obama. Where is Obama in this? Why did Clyburn's endorsement come so late? Uh, why didn't it come earlier? Why did Mayor Pete drop out? Would he have dropped out so late in this without a certain well-placed phone call saying, not just this is best for the party, but your future will be taken care of, given that you will never win a statewide race in the state of Indiana. We will have a post for you in the cabinet if Biden wins. I think these kinds of negotiations were definitely going on because otherwise the consolidation would not have happened nearly as quickly as it did. And just on Mayor Pete, to go to your, it's not a conspiracy theory, but your deep explanation, he did meet Jimmy Carter just before he dropped out. Yes. You're not saying, so we don't think Jimmy Carter was pulling the strings. <laughs> uh, no, I always get in trouble, especially when I taught in the South with my students, because I'd always skip over Jimmy Carter when I was going through the presidents. And they, but, he, but he built that Southern Wall, and then he delivered he built the Southern Wall. I don't think a generation Carter later. does not have that influence. No, I was joking. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. There were plenty of reports about a phone call between Obama and Mayor Pete. Yes, and weekend. I think there was a phone call between Obama and Amy Klobuchar as well. I think there was a lot of behind-the-scenes th things go going on. And here, in our age of social media, we're always reading declarations, but it's always important to read silence. And Obama's silence, mm. he's a disciplined man, but he's not this disciplined. He's got a legacy to protect, and his silence speaks to me very, very loudly. And we'll come on to, because presumably one thing he can do now is get involved quite soon and endorse the person who we think is going to be the nominee. On the other side, then, there wasn't anyone in the Obama role to tell Warren to drop out. Like, the left does not have its person behind the scenes who 
people have to listen to. Could, should she have withdrawn? That's not for me. me to say. There's got to be bloodletting on the left now between, because the Bernie camp is going to blame uh, Warren. If, if, if all of Warren's votes had gone to Bernie, he would have won a couple more states. Now, I think it's a fallacy to think all of Warren's votes would have gone to Bernie. Uh, but they both represent the left in American politics today, and they both understand it. One of the problems that uh, all leftists face in America, other than the general hostility to left politics in America, <laughs> is that there is no party. There's no party establishment. There is the Democratic Socialists of America who've grown from 8,000 to 40 or 60,000 in the last couple years. But there literally is no establishment to say, okay, guys, this is our best chance ever in American history to put a leftist in the White House. Yeah, when they wrote the book, the party decides they were not thinking of the Democratic Socialists of America. They were not thinking of the Democratic Socialists. And so th there's, there's no force that can do it. It really depends on the individual will of the two campaigns. And we know there was deep tensions between them. And also the, the gender element weighs very heavily on this, the conviction in the Warren camp that the Bernie bros have a strong misogynistic streak in them. And Warren saying, I'm here as a leftist, although she wouldn't be comfortable with that label. She is. But she's also saying, I'm here as a woman, the last best chance for a woman in this election. So it would have been very hard to negotiate. Not impossible, but it could not have been executed. What's impressive about the Democratic Party establishment or Obama is how quickly it was executed. You know, 24 to 48 hours it happened. Sanders and Warren could not have executed anything that quickly, maybe something over two or three weeks. I'm not so convinced as you, Gary, though you in one sense better place to judge than I am, uh, that you can really straightforwardly put Warren on the left. At the very least, she's a different kind of left mm -hmm. than Sanders and not really appealing to the same kind of people. I mean, there's a lot more college-educated professionals in Warren's coalition, such as it is, limited as it, <laughs> limited as it is. And it's not difficult to see that quite a lot of those voters actually when push comes to shove and they're faced with a choice between um, Biden and Sanders, they're going to choose Biden. There's something that's essentially, I think, a bit more sort of like, not quite revolutionary politics about Bernie, but there's an element of it. Warren's a technocrat, a leftist technocrat still, but she's still, you know, she's got all her policy positions that she very much wants to be able to explain how that they're going to work, how she's going to deliver. Her critique of Bernie is that he doesn't know how to do that, that it's a kind of chaotic kind of politics and she represents policy order in that sense. So I'm not sure that they're interchangeable. And I'm not sure even, to be honest, how faced with a choice between Biden and Sanders that Warren will be absolutely committed to Sanders. Mm. Well, if those two can't get together, the left has no hope. And America. I agree with you that there are differences, but if you think of when did Warren first falter, you could say it was Medicare for all, but the other explanation is when she made it clear that if she was elected, she was going to break up all the big social media companies. That's pretty left-wing to me. That's an attack on the most powerful citadels of American capitalism. Now, she doesn't think in revolutionary terms, and she doesn't think in movement terms of mobilizing a base like Sanders does. So in that sense, Sanders comes out of a different tradition. She comes out of a, a technocratic tradition. I just wish, you know, the, in, in the 1890s, the uh, strongest state for socialism in America was Oklahoma. Well, it was Kansas. Kansas and Oklahoma. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, there's a tradition that she could have connected to in Oklahoma. And part of the oddity of her campaign is she's been entirely defined as within a Harvard academic technocratic 
bubble. I mean, she's she's a working class woman from Oklahoma. Hard scrabble, pull herself up, all kinds of ways of connecting with a kind of white working class base, and she's utterly constrained in terms of her appeal now to college towns and a certain kind of middle class. But I don't think we should underestimate her radicalism, and I connect her to Louis Brandeis, the anti-monopoly tradition in American life, where you've got to break up centers of power and influence when they get to be too big, and she is the most eloquent critic of that in American society today, even more so than Sanders. On that real clear politics betting chart, there are all these things that now look like bubbles, the Kamala Harris bubble, the Bloomberg bubble, which was a very short-lived bubble. The longest-lasting bubble was the Elizabeth Warren bubble. I mean, she was strong, over 50% chance for, for a while. It's also interesting in this, the establishment kicked back into gear. So James Carville, Bill Clinton's guy from back in the day, has been pretty prominent and gave one or two impassioned interviews in which he said, in terror, like, we can't nominate Sanders or we'll become the British Labour Party. We have to find a candidate. And he said, the best candidate with the best story is Elizabeth Warren. My God, why is she not killing this? Because he also said because she'd moved far too left. Yeah, but still, she did have a great story. And we'll come on to what Biden stands for in a minute. He doesn't actually have such a great story. One other historical comparison I wanted to run by you. The other thing this campaign reminds me of a bit is 2008 and John McCain. Because John McCain, people remember, became the Republican nominee to fight Obama in that legendary election. He was dead and buried. He was written off. I can remember the headlines. You know, when is McCain going to pull out? His campaign is moribund. And he came, you know, he came fourth, I think, in Iowa. He did win New Hampshire. But he, you know, he, he came storming back. The party did decide again. Biden reminds me of <coughs> McCain's candidacy. And, of course, McCain then lost the general election. But it's not that we're just in some revolutionary era. These, these patterns repeat themselves. This, this reminds me a bit of 2008. Well, when I flash back to McCain in 2008, what I immediately flash back to is the importance of the vice presidential nomination. Because the, the other point of comparison, yes, the, they were both comeback kids, uh, but the other point of comparison is that McCain was perceived in 2008 to be a seriously ailing man, not as old as Biden is now, but with many more ailments. And that made his choice of a vice presidential candidate particularly important because everyone was thinking not just who is this man we're voting for for president, but who is going to become president if McCain dies in office. And I know a lot of people, including my father-in-law, ultimately voted for Obama on the vice presidential ground. And so in, in some ways, the Sarah Palin choice was an element that really hurt McCain. And this goes to the importance of if Biden is going to get the nomination, the absolute centrality of the vice presidential nominee, not just picking up votes in other parts of the country where Biden is weak, but so people who are voting for Biden can plausibly imagine this person as president of the United States, because that is going to be on everyone's mind. We all know Biden is going to have vacant moments over the next six months. That's, he had some last night. That's not, going to, that's not going to change. And the weaknesses of his candidacy, which is why he faltered so many times as the front runner, are not going to go away. He's got to have a better organization now, a better machine. I mean, that will come in, the money will come in, and, and other experts and operatives will be there and become important, but there are serious concerns about the quality of his candidacy. And that's why the Democratic Party got in the mess it was. That's also why Bloomberg got into the, to the campaign. So that issue for the Democratic Party is not going away. Does he remind you of McCain? 
Not really. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the reason why is, is because I can't remember the name of that. One of those social conservatives, or was it Rick Perry? Somebody who won the Iowa, whoever won the Iowa caucus. Or, I don't think it actually was that one that time. But the Republicans had a tradition of producing some social conservative, Christian social conservative who would win the Iowa caucus. And that, that would then cause a problem for whoever the, the party establishment was more in favour of. But I think the thing in 2008, as I recall, on the Republican side, was that it was McCain versus Romney. That once, whoever the candidate, I can't remember, was falling away, <laughs> then you had a contest between these two. Now, neither of them were really at the heart of the then Republican Party establishment. They weren't complete you know, outsiders. But there was a lot of bad blood between McCain and Bush, George Bush Junior. They had, I mean... If you wanted another incident where a case where South Carolina played a decisive turn, it was in 2000 when John McCain was challenging George Bush for the Republican nomination and an incredibly nasty campaign took place in South Carolina that effectively destroyed John McCain's um, candidacy then. But the one in 2008 on the Republican side was between two people on the edge, I would say, of the Republican Party establishment. Now, Romney had come in much more than he was then, but he wasn't that embraced, and partly it was to do with him being a Mormon from Utah, but also he governed in Massachusetts, he'd been in favour of a, you know, a state version of Obamacare. Neither him nor McCain, for different reasons, really quite fitted with the Republican establishment. So let's talk about, we're going to assume Biden will be the nominee, and let's talk about what might happen. So I want to ask a Bloomberg question to start. So Bloomberg got into this race, spent half a billion dollars, which is not a lot if you're worth $50 billion, but it's a lot in real terms. Didn't get much for his money. Someone will do the math and work out how much each vote cost him. It'll be quite a lot. But he always said that this was partly to put his resources behind defeating Donald Trump, and he wasn't You'd like it to be him, but he wasn't super fussed about who it would be. And he'll be fine supporting, I assume, supporting Biden. But also, the kind of advertising that he was running, it was to say, vote for Mike, but it was to really push the electability issue. And there's a lot of evidence overnight that electability, when people who voted for Biden were asked why, electability was a big factor in that. And it's at least possible that Bloomberg's advertising has already worked a bit in Biden's favour and against Sanders. And that, those resources are still there. So Bloomberg could still, I think, have some impact on this race. I mean, it's not just that the establishment is there. You know, the Democrats have got some stuff to throw at Trump, including money now. My favourite line from Bloomberg is uh, he was asked uh, when he was still a serious candidate for the presidency what he thought about two billionaires running against each other in the general election. And his answer was that, to that was, who is the other billionaire? <laughs> Well, he went to Las Vegas and bet a half billion dollars and lost, Mike Bloomberg. Although I think your point is a, a shrewd one, David, that he did press the electability issue to the fore. And one of the questions we have to answer is why did turnout go up yesterday? Why was turnout not, <laughs> not going up earlier in the earlier primaries? And one interpretation of that is that the electability issue was already weighing on Democrats' minds, and a lot of them chose to stay home, or they were uncertain about what they wanted to do. And suddenly, when Biden's path to the nomination became somewhat clearer and continued to be influenced by Bloomberg's mass advertising campaign, many more of them turned up at the polls. We don't know that for sure because we don't have enough information yet, but that's certainly a plausible scenario. The Bloomberg and Biden campaigns are talking, and if Bloomberg really wants to defeat Trump, he will drop out of the campaign 
soon and put his extraordinary machine and extraordinary resources in the service of Biden. He has shown himself to be an inept retail politician. Helen told me before that he spent an enormous amount of money winning in New York. Uh, he's someone who's very good deploying his money and, and deploying organizations. But in the retail world of American politics, he has severe limitations. I think it's been too long since he's talked to anyone who was not an employee of his, which can work fine in a large, well-run corporation, but works not quite as well in the hurly-burly world of American politics. So it's been appalling how, how weak and unorganized the Biden machine has been. I, I think he had one office in the state of California through yesterday, if you can believe that. Not much more in the state of Texas. And so having an infusion of organization from the Bloomberg machine into the Biden campaign can make an enormous amount of difference. And he won Texas. Yes. I think Bloomberg, can, he can do the buying bit of retail politics. He can't do the selling bit. Yeah, I was reading a book yesterday, and the beginning uh, of it was that it's from a New Yorker article from 2009, and it said, no man in his American hit political history has spent more money buying public office than Michael Bloomberg. And this was just to be mayor of New York. So I think the thing about uh, Biden's campaign financially and organisationally was, as Gary said, how phenomenally weak it was for what was supposed to be the party establishment's lead candidate. So actually, if you look at the fundraising, it was relatively you know, like poor from the start. He struggled with endorsements. I mean, Obama might have been doing some work behind the scenes in the last 48 hours, but he sure as hell wasn't helping him prior to that in terms of giving any obvious indication that he was willing to support him. Indeed, any time Biden tried to get closer to Obama, Obama seemed to push him away, or the people around Obama seemed to um, push him away. So it suggests that actually the party establishment itself and the donors who were very important for the party establishment, as we know, had got quite a lot of doubts about Biden. Now, I think that it's fair to say that from the point of view of Bloomberg, he, in part, wasn't just critiquing what he saw as the weakness of Biden as a candidate, I think, but the weakness of the machinery around him. And part of his argument, at least in one of the debates, was, look, I basically bought as a House majority because it was my money in these crucial seats in 2018, midterm elections, that got us where it is. So you can see a scenario, I think, in which if Bloomberg's willing basically to sort of say, OK, here's my money and here's what I can do organisationally, that that works well. On the other hand, you know, Trump was in general, in terms of the kind of money that gets spent in American politics, a, a weekly finance candidate. I mean, he was a non-existent finance candidate, except for his own money in the search for the um, Republican nomination in 2016. But he was quite easily outspent by Clinton in the general election in, in 2016. Trump's got it wrong with a lot more money this time and a lot more organisation. Again, I mean, he was winning states in the primaries uh, in 2016 where he had no organisation whatsoever. I mean... He practically ran his primary campaign off his Twitter account. But that isn't going to be the Trump, the, the Democratic candidate's going to be up against this time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
So let's talk about Biden versus Trump. So many different perspectives you can have on Biden. So something I would recommend to people is the New York Times interview. They did in-depth interviews with the editorial board, and they published the full transcript. And the full transcript of the Biden interview is really interesting because it brings out both his weaknesses and his strengths. So it's really rambly, and there are moments in that, however long it took, hour, hour and a half, where you felt he might be having an episode. He didn't seem to know what was going on. It's very folksy, so he's trying to schmooze them. Even on the page, you can sense he's kind of charming, but also it's a little bit strange. <laughs> but it's quite policy-heavy. I was pointed to it by John Norton, who we often talk to on this podcast, because he said, you've got to read the stuff at the end about the big technology companies. It's not just Elizabeth Warren who's coming for them. Joe Biden's coming for them, which scares me, because then Zuckerberg might, when he realizes that Biden is coming for him, do to him what he did to Elizabeth Warren. But you know, Biden's a serious guy, and he's got some serious ideas. He's got some huge weaknesses. You know, an hour and a half, there are moments where you think, he could be an amazing president. And there are moments where you think, this guy doesn't seem like he might have the wherewithal. What do you think? That's what I think. <laughs> uh, before it's a mixed picture. A mixed, he's a very mixed bag. Uh, before I talk about him, let me just, I need to say a word about Bernie in relationship to the election. First of all, this election's got to go on for a while, and both of them are going to accumulate a lot of delegates. Secondly, we have to remember that, or have to take cognizance of the fact that Bernie Sanders is the most, arguably the most successful socialist politician candidate in all of American history. He has changed American politics in very significant ways. He has passionate supporters. Some of you may be in this very room with us right now. And I'm saying this because that is going to have to be part of Biden's plan. The Democrats have a way forward of having a, a centrist with a strong leftist presence in the campaign. The model for that is the most successful Democratic politician of the 20th century in America. That's Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was a centrist, but he had to deal with thunder on the left during his campaign. And he made a very strategic decision before he was reelected in 1936 to turn left and to bring the battalions of the left on board with him. I think Biden wants, he's gonna need Bernie's soldiers and that support to win the election and that enthusiasm. And that's gonna to have to be part of the deliberations and negotiations that go on. So quite apart from Biden as a candidate, if that relationship is not in some ways resolved, the Democrats I think are gonna be in trouble in November. And I would encourage them to look at the model of, of Roosevelt Thunder on the left being incorporated into a center-left coalition in very, very meaningful ways. And left politicians of the 30s could point to the achievements of the New Deal as having been, the left achievements of the New Deal as having been real. So I think this is very, very important. And if the tech companies are a part of his project, you've got me more riled up than I normally am <laughs> when I'm just sitting in the studio then that has to go to the fore. And I think he should also, why not take a stand on the, on the Green New Deal and make that, make that his own in some meaningful way as a point of agreement and coalition on which the center and left of the Democratic Party can, can come together. And Hillary did not manage to achieve that reconciliation in 2016, and it cost her. I see where you're coming from, Gary, but the other problem is for Biden, if he's going to be the nominee, is, is that he, to win, he's got to take 
basically high proportion of those suburban voters who really, really don't want to vote for Trump, but really couldn't have stomached voting for Bernie. The path to winning runs through those people being in the, in the coalition too. And that's quite hard to reconcile, I think, with them saying, OK, let's push Biden into some of Bernie's left positions. And I'd say that that's particularly an issue on Green New Deal, particularly if it's going to push Biden into a much stronger anti-shale position than he's taken so far. I think that's the path to you know, electoral suicide. We've been starting with, you know, like what might happen in Ohio if you end up pushing Biden into a banned shale drilling immediately position. And I think that the issue with Biden, as well as you know, the, the issue about uh, his cognitive uh, competence now, uh, is that he's vulnerable to the same kind of attacks that Trump deployed so successfully in 2016. I mean, Trump does best when he's got what he thinks of as establishment politicians who he can stick some label on, you know, like low-energy Jeb. Little Marco, Sleepy Joe, Crooked Hillary. This is all, you know, like red meat for Trump. And it gives him the chance to run as president, as an outsider, which is, doesn't make any sense, but he will be able, he will be able to do that um, against Biden. And then you take some of the difficulties that Biden has had. I mean, I, I can't remember quite the sequence in which he fell from all the times in which he's been favorite, but at least one of them was when the Democrats decided that they needed to try to impeach Donald Trump around Hunter Biden. I don't think we're going to hear the end of that. There's the issues about his relations to the credit card industry in Delaware. It's very easy to attack as a kind of like servant of the oligarchic class. And again, it doesn't matter that Trump's being a hypocrite in relation to making attacks on people as having that relationship to the oligarchic class. Trump's already proven that he can play that kind of um, card and make it work as a vote winner. It always was said that the candidate Trump feared was Joe Biden. Um, he, so he got a nickname earlier than the others, Sleepy Joe. There is a potential trap here for Trump, which I think is the Hunter Biden trap, which is that Trump could go so far down that rabbit hole that he doesn't come out the other side. I mean, there is, you know, there is a way in which... And there were bits of it around the impeachment. I mean, when we're talking about cognitive... Um, I'm not sure what the phrase is here. <laughs> talking about people's state of mind... Trump has his weaknesses too, and uh, there is a danger against Biden that he becomes obsessed with features of Biden's past. He does fear him. I mean, certainly he wanted Bernie, not Biden. But it is this extraordinary thing. It's going to be a battle between two... So it's not the two septuagenarian billionaires, but it's the two old guys. And I agree with you, Gary. It really matters who the vice presidential... Candidates, there, there is even a question, it's not totally speculative, which is what happens if Biden gets the nomination, chooses Klobuchar or someone as his running mate, and then something happens between now and November. I mean, there have been one or two moments in the campaign, and there were apparently one or two moments in Iowa when he was doing retail politics on the ground and actually in the room with people. You know, one or two sort of one or two minute moments where people really did wonder whether his candidacy could continue. What does actually happen if the, the presidential nominee doesn't make it to November? Uh, I don't know, actually. Because uh, it's never you, happened, it's right? It's never happened before. If, if the election had already happened, then the vice... Uh, Roosevelt almost was assassinated in February 1933 before he took office in March 1933. 
and then Vice President-elect John Garner would have been president. Maybe someone in the room knows here, if we have some political science experts uh, in American government. Uh, but I would imagine the Democratic Party, and I don't know if the Democratic Party has a, has a rule about this, that they would have to reconvene something in order to elevate someone else to be the presidential nominee. And that could be the vice presidential nominee, but the vice presidential nominee has no claim, automatic claim, on that position. There would have to be some, I think, some kind of assembly to make that decision. Yeah, when Donna Brazil was talking about this in her book in relation to her concerns as chair of the DNC about Hillary's health last time, and the implica strong implication was there would have to be some reconvening of the convention. Not the whole convention necessarily, but some kind of convention. Now, one, one thing Biden can provide, even as he has his senior moments, is a skillfully run campaign. So I don't, I don't disagree with you about the dangers if he goes too far to the left. But the distaste for, uh, on, in Republican suburbs for Trump is so intense that this is, a, this is a problem, finessing the relationship between the left and the center, that a skillful politician in America should be able to manage. And the way to do that is, if he had, were to adopt a Green New Deal, is not simply to adopt the Bernie program for the Green New Deal or the Ocasio-Cortez numbers of, numbers of trillions, but to domesticate it, make it his own, and do more to connect it to Roosevelt than to the current socialists. In other words, there's, there's room for, interesting room for negotiation here, and, and that's something that can go on regardless of how many senior moments uh, Biden has. I have enormous respect for Trump's skills as a politician, and I'm so frustrated with friends of mine who, who are still in the gotcha moment. Uh, okay, we got him now. Well, we're in our 10th gotcha moment for Donald <laughs> Trump, and he's still riding high. The latest gotcha moment is, of course, the coronavirus is going to bring him down. And we just have to get over the gotcha moment. He's too skillful a politician. He's too successful a counterpuncher. He was formidable in 2016. As David said, he's going to be more formidable in 2020 because he has all kinds of resources he didn't have then. And he probably has the most sophisticated social media operation of any candidate operating in America. Sanders is second, and they're going to need Sanders' skill of his people in this campaign if they're going to meet Trump head-to-head. -head. So, so I'm wary because we've been called out too many times. After all, it's not a done deal yet, and I'm speculating what would happen between the convention and the election, but there's a long way to go to the convention. And of course, with something to happen between now and the convention, it's Bernie's again, because he's, he's running second. He won California last night. He, he won a number of states. You know, he performed well. He just under, seriously underperformed. But he will have the second greatest number of delegates. It's still not certain that Biden will have a majority of delegates, although he looks likely he will have a big plurality of delegates. So there is still a long, long way to go in this. There's plenty that could happen. And then there's the coronavirus and, every, and everything else. I mean, the markets, you know, not least, Trump's mental health seems quite strongly correlated to the level of the Dow Jones <laughs> industrial average. So this hasn't been a good week for him. Uh, yes, that's true. But the stock market won't get him either. Uh, he'll survive. But the uh, the... If we flash back to 2008, would Obama have won that election without the financial crash that hit in September 2008? And I would venture to say the answer to that is probably no. So the Notwithstanding Sarah Palin? because you, you Even notwithstanding say. Sarah Palin. I think it was a combination, oh my God, the financial system of the world is hanging by a thread and Sarah Palin is one breath away from the White House. <laughs> uh, and that's what persuaded a lot of people finally who did not want to vote for a Democrat or a black man to pull the lever and, and to do it. And so we, we, we can imagine in the volatile world in which we live, 
number of events of that magnitude happening between now and the election that, that could be decisive. And let's hope uh, James Comey has no more influence on anything to do with American politics. I was just saying, I, I think entirely agree about 2008. And Sarah Palin actually has a positive effect on McCain's polling in the first 10 days or so after he, he nominates her. The turn, decisive turn, is, is once you get to the Lehman bankruptcy. The Obama campaign is in some trouble before then. And then it's completely turned around by the financial crisis um, intensifying. I mean, people forget about Sarah Palin. There's a great moment in that book, um, Race of a Lifetime, describing John McCain behind the stage. Sarah Palin has been introduced at the Republican convention and she's got to give the speech. And he's as terrified as everyone else. He doesn't know anything about her. It's a massive gamble. And apparently he's standing there absolutely petrified. And he watches her and he goes from, I think it's going to be okay, to she's good at this, to she killed it, to oh my God, she's brilliant. Because it was an amazingly effective speech. It just turns out she didn't have any other political skills. But, you know, no candidate is all one thing or all the other. And so on that note, I'm going to ask you a last question, which is who should be, if it's Biden, who should be the Veep nominee? Well, I'm going to ask the audience that question, but I'll uh, venture a couple suggestions. Given the importance of the black vote in terms of saving Biden and in terms of its extraordinary importance in the Democratic Party, a black VP is one possibility. I'm not sure who that might be. Kamala Harris, Stacey Abram. Another possibility would be to try and bring in some, someone associated with the Bernie campaign. I don't think it could be Elizabeth Warren, and certainly couldn't be Bernie, I don't think. But, but someone who would act as a, a kind of bridge, or who could act as a bridge to the kind of white working class voter voting for Trump that Bernie has, in 2016, had a great deal of appeal to. The third option is to choose someone who's, who's going to please the Republican suburbanites. And I think that would be the wrong choice. And would that be Klobuchar? That would probably be Klobuchar. And I think that would be the wrong choice. And Although I think, she would be quite a good, if something happens to Biden, she could be president candidate, wouldn't she? Or yes, not? yes, yes. And, um, and she's a plausible president. She's a plausible president. And I think there's also an argument for a woman. And she also may have some traction in the upper Midwest states, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania are very, very important swing states. And if she demonstrates a lot of strength in that area beyond Minnesota, that may be a reason to go for her as, as well. So that's Gary's answer. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, I do think it was quite striking that if you look last night, that the further west you went, the better that Sanders did, or the weaker that Biden did. So having somebody from west of the Mississippi, I think there is a clear political logic to that. And quite often, in terms of vice presidential picks, it has been electoral geography that's mm -hmm. mattered, as opposed to who demographically the person is or, or which policy position they are in. On the question of how you hold the coalition together, I think I agree that actually it's better to go to the left with the vice presidential candidate and not go to the left on some of the policy issues. I think that there will be strong pressure to have a woman, particularly given the ways in which many Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris supporters feel that, that their candidates didn't get a fair shake at it. So this is Cambridge, England. We don't have a huge amount of influence over 
US politics, we're going to do a straw poll. So I'm just going to give three. So assuming Biden is the nominee, still a, it's still an if, but it's not a huge if. So, so if the choice is between, and, and it will probably be someone other than these three, but they, they each represent something. So if the choice is between Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren, so who would go for Klobuchar? So I'm reporting to our listeners, that's nobody. <laughs> who would go for Kamala Harris? That's nearly everybody. And who would go for Elizabeth Warren? That's a few people. So there you go, Joe. Are you going to let Kamala know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've got 10 ish minutes just under, so we could take two or three questions. Um, there's someone. Oh, okay, we'll go there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, what is Sanders's remaining path to the nomination, if, if that exists at all still? And that's presumably not the something happens to Biden path. <laughs> does, he, does he have one? I think that he does incredibly well from here on out, amassing delegates, so that the delegate count at the convention between Biden and Sanders is relatively close, so that there's then a need for a brokered convention. It's interesting that we haven't talked about a brokered convention yeah. today. When Sanders was in the lead, we were talking about a brokered convention all the time, understanding that Biden might be five or 10 points behind. So I think his best shot is doing well enough in uh, keeping the campaign going. I think his positions have hardened to the left. He has to stop dreaming about a mobilization of young people, people of color, who are going to be the new Democratic majority, new voters coming to the polls. I think that's not his path. I think his only path now is to broaden his base. And that is going to mean sending out signals that in some ways he's moving to the center. One way to do that, for example, I don't think he should go back to his earlier position in Vermont on guns. But the earlier Sanders was not someone who favored open immigration, open borders. And I think we can discuss this another time. In this world of climate catastrophe, no politician in a democracy, I think, can simply be for open borders. The right has an answer to this. The left does not. And so something that he can do to signal that he's moving to the center on some issues where other voters want him to move to the center would be the way of doing that. And then making the fight from here to the end very close. But can I just say two things? A, that's great advice. It is too late, isn't it? The crucial thing is, is he, I mean, which goes against what actually I, I said, or at least qualifies what I just said about the West, is he's losing Texas. Because if he'd managed to win in Texas last night, there still may have been a path to the nomination. I think without it, it's very difficult to see what it is. But, I mean, I, I agree with Gary in this sense. is It's really revealing, I think, that essentially what Bernie has managed to do between 2016 and 2020 is narrow his coalition not widen his coalition, his narrow his coalition. And you could actually see that in some of the earlier states, even when, when he was um, doing well. And the open borders is not the only reason why that, that ha has happened, but it is one of the reasons, I think, why it's happened. And then the other thing I was going to say, if it does get to a brokered convention, we were working on the assumption that a brokered convention is bad for Sanders. It's hard for him. I mean, the only way he comes out of a brokered convention as the nominee is he has a lot more delegates than Biden. But it looks likely at the moment that it would... Broker, but he would be coming from behind. I don't. So my own view, and you know, I could be wrong about this. I I don't see a path. I do not. From yesterday to today, I do not see a path for Bernie. Well, I understood the question to be, what's his long shot chance 
for the yeah. nomination. So that's and here, let me just say, let's remember the weaknesses of Biden as a candidate. And uh, without him having a two-minute vacant moment on the stage, there are other things that could happen between now and then that would make a lot of people rethink his electability. So I think Bernie has now become a long shot, but I would say the door is not entirely closed. And he, he's got to be in this to the end. This is his last shot. He wants to leave a legacy, and, and the legacy can occur in various forms. I don't think he's going to win the nomination, but he should be. I, I would imagine he's thinking about his long-term legacy and influence in American politics, and there he still has a chance to make an impact. And thank you for that question, because it reminds me we should have talked more about this. But your answer also suggests to me that actually it's the gotcha moment with Biden that might let Bernie back in. So there is another option, which is to really go for him. I mean, just to to try and find the weakness that is the fatal weakness, even including digging. I mean, Helen listed some of the weaknesses of Biden going forward, and even if it's not Hunter Biden, there are connections and associations there. I don't think that Sanders should do that because I don't think that would help Biden defeat Trump. But, it, you know, if it's, if it's Bernie or bust, then you go after Biden. Right, and we should keep in mind here, Delaware is the party of DuPont, and Biden has spent his entire career being elected in some ways by the party of DuPont. DuPont is the city-state in Delaware. It's a very small state with a very, very large corporation that has enormous influence over everything. Let's take one more. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to get gender balance. Do you think that a male technocratic candidate would have performed differently, or is there just not really space in the Democratic Party for that kind of policy wonk message? So was the problem with... Warren's candidacy a gendered one, which is that the, the cognitive dissonance for some voters was technocratic woman. Is that the question, to put it bluntly? Uh, I think both uh, technocracy and gender are involved. I, th I don't think it's one or the other. I think a technocratic man would have been treated differently than Warren was. There's a marvelous piece on Warren in the New York Review of Books by Caroline Fraser, I think. Marvelous analysis of Warren and gender, I recommend it to everyone. I think it's called the gender trap, and it's about Warren falling into the gender trap. But I think there's a technocratic element. At one point, she, I, she had between 25 and 30 plans. This is uh, reminiscent of one of the Corbin problems, of you, people lose track of so many. And one day, the Wall Street Journal, just in, on their editorial page, published every one of Warren's plans without commentary. And I like a lot of what Warren has done, and my head hurt by the time I got to the end of that list. And I think she got caught in her own rhetoric, both with Medicare for All and I have a plan. And she didn't realize the degree to which she was proliferating plans, and she should not have had 25 or 30. She should have said, I have three plans I really care about that I want to share with you. And then she should have found a way to tie those plans into her, her incredibly compelling personal story. So there, I think technocratic elements entered it, but I think uh, she had a, a higher hill to climb because of her gender, absolutely. I think gender was an issue, but I also think that she did much better. If you look at the part of her candidacy when she was doing much better, it wasn't in her more technocratic phase, it was in her more storytelling phase, when she was basically going out and telling people about her life, her earlier life and her struggles and that she actually was quite good at that kind of storytelling. Indeed, in that interview that James Carville gave, when he was saying it should have been her, essentially, he was saying, like, what happened to that? 
Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, she had the best story. And if you look at then at what the specific trigger, if you like, for it falling away for her, it was when she got, got into laying out how she was going to pay for Medicare for all. The fact that she was trying to do that was a significantly more honest thing than what Sanders doing in relation to Medicare for all. But that drew attention to the fact that it, it, it didn't add up and it actually, instead of Medicare for all being a symbolic policy about saying that we have to take healthcare incredibly seriously and that something's gone horribly wrong with it still, despite Obamacare, which is in one sense, you know, Bernie's overriding message, it became, how is that policy change actually going to happen in the real world of American politics? And she didn't have an answer. And if you're going to be part of the technocrat, then you have to have an answer to how the change is going to come about. We will tweet the links at tppodcast underscore to the articles that we have mentioned today. And we're definitely going to be talking about this again. And we may all have been wrong again, in which case we'll come back and pretend that we said some other things than we did. But there is a record. Uh, I certainly think Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, but there is still a lot to talk about. Next week, we're going to be talking about something very different. I'll be speaking to David Spiegelhalter, the professor of the public understanding of risk, about super forecasting and Dominic Cummings. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Why was turnup, turnup, turnup? Why was turnout not not going up earlier? I think the thing in 2008, as I recall on the Republican side, was that it was McCain versus Romney. From you know, that that once, whoever the candidate I can't remember. Sort I of, think it was Rick Santorum, but yeah, it was Rick Santorum. Yeah, oh, Rick Santorum. Uh, fallen was, was falling away. <laughs>